Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms, and I'm going to read Psalm 92 in its entirety. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's word as it's found in Psalm 92. I'm reading from the New International Version. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath day. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High. Proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. To the music of the ten-string lyre and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. How great are your works, Lord. How profound your thoughts. Senseless people do not know. Fools do not understand that though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish... They will be destroyed forever. But you, Lord, are forever exalted. For surely your enemies, Lord, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured on me. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming, The Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, your word which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would sweeten this psalm in our hearts and in our minds, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path of life. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, your Son and our Savior, who reigns together with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, when I was trying to think up a title for this sermon, I thought, how about a psalm, a song for the Sabbath day? (laughs) After all, this psalm, like a fair number of psalms, has its own title, And uh, that title really does capture the sense of the psalm. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes when we read the title of a psalm and then we read the psalm itself, it's a little bit hard for us to put together how the title and the psalm go together, uh, but not in this case. Uh, This psalm is a bit long, so I'm not going to try to cover it in any kind of detail, But we do have the time to at least get the big picture. This psalm is really a a Sabbath reflection. It's a reflection for us. It guides us on some things that we can do and reasons for doing them uh, on the Lord's day. So if you look at your uh, text, you'll notice that in verse 4, it starts with that word for, for you make me glad. Uh, from verse 4 on, everything's a big reason, and in the first couple of verses, we're kind of given some guidance on what to do in terms of reflecting on the Sabbath. 
And so the big picture, two things, good things to do, a good reason to do them. You with me? Let's just walk our way through this psalm, kind of fast-paced. Let's look, first of all, at those first three verses, uh, a good thing to do. Uh, Actually, there are several good things to do here. And it depends on what translation you have in front of you as to how this is going to come out in English. First good thing, give thanks. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. Now, that's the language of the ESV. The language of the NIV is it's good to praise the Lord. Because when we're giving thanks, the reason why we're giving thanks is to express our praise to God. So the ESV uses good, uh, uh, give thanks, and the NIV uses praise. But at the heart of what we're doing here is really the word confession. Whether you translate this as give thanks or whether you translate it as praise, what you need to be thinking about is confessing. What you need to be thinking about is acknowledging. That's the idea here. It is good to confess. It is good to confess who God is. Give thanks to the Lord. Uh, See, it doesn't say give thanks to God. It could have. Uh, When the Old Testament uses God, like in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created, it's speaking of God in his kind of universal power, authority, his transcendence, he's way above us. But here it's give thanks to the Lord. The Lord is Genesis chapter 2 when the Lord God is walking in intimate fellowship. This is God in his covenant relationship with us. It's good to confess who God is. And this is a struggle at times. Some folks, when they think of God, they think of God as the one who is way, way out there and unknowable and untouchable. Uh, Other people think of God like as uh, my best kind of friend, a genie in a bottle. I can rub the bottle to get some help when I need it. How how do we think of God? He certainly is, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning of God, uh, God, but he's also the Lord. He's the one who does walk with us and talk with us and tell us that we are his own. Uh, That was my dad's favorite hymn. I know Presbyterians uh, don't all, and it's not in our hymnal, right? Um, And it, 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 I don't know, maybe it's a little bit too emotive or too romantic. It's a great hymn, In the Garden. Uh, that's, That's really what the Lord is getting at. He's the sovereign one who is also in the garden with us, walking with us, talking with us, telling us that we're his own. So when when we, it's good It's good to remember who God is, that he is transcendent. He's way up there. I mean, we can't even, when we start to talk about God, we might as well just quit because he is so far above our understanding. Uh, And yet we can talk about God because God has revealed himself to us in his word. And so it's good just to reflect on the Lord's day, Uh, just to get our bearings again on who God is And through the scriptures, get that well-rounded perspective. Uh, And it's also good to make music. Now, um, this word is going to be translated variously. I like the NIV here, make music. Uh, It's the word that is related to the noun from which we get psalm. And it has to do with the use of instruments. 
most of the time, the instruments are being used to accompany singing, words. But not always. Sometimes the, the instruments are being used as they were during the offering all by themselves. But that idea of making music brings in the idea of instrumentation. Now, as Presbyterians, that's not always our history. If we go back far enough, we didn't have any instruments in worship. We didn't have any hymns in worship. The only thing we sang were the 150 psalms, and we did not sing them to the accompaniment of any instruments. Our friend Spurgeon, you know the name Spurgeon? Spurgeon said, I love organs, especially when the pipes are filled with cement. Because he didn't want there to be any instrumentation. I'm not going to go into the ins and outs of all of this. Uh, I've never bought the position, although I did go to a college that still only sings psalms and does not use instrumentation. They do use, uh, this is a little bit of a joke, this John Frame, if you know the name, they do use a pitch pipe to get the first note. And Frame said, if you can use the pitch pipe to get the first note, why not the second? And if you can use it to get the melody, why not the harmony? You got an organ. Uh, So at any rate, musical instrumentation is wonderful. Now our translations are going to have some lutes. They're going to have some lyres, not L-I-A-R, but L-Y-R-E. And they're going to have some harps. Um, What's going on with these different translations? Okay, let's get rid of the harp. You know, picture the harp, the big bow, big strings coming down. No evidence that ancient Israelites had any knowledge or use of the harp. So whenever your translations use harp, you think of David playing his harp, um, Cohen's song, hallelujah. Yeah, no harps. Uh, Then we have the lute. The lute is kind of like a guitar, only instead of being, I don't know, can you picture like uh, Willie Nelson's big, you know, guitar kind of... Lutes were a little bit more, I guess, kind of like a pear-shaped. And then the neck would go up, and then it would be angled at the top to tie the strings. Uh, Yeah, there's no evidence that ancient Israelites knew lutes either. Um, So we're we're back to the lyre, and that's probably what we got here. We probably got a couple of different kinds. Now, the word for lyre in Hebrew, got to teach you a new Hebrew word, yes? Everybody say navel. Navel. Yeah, not, not this one, but... I have a two-year-old granddaughter, and she's fascinated right now by everybody's navel. Don't ask me why. But at any rate, the Hebrew word for navel, which is one of these words, is also a word for a jug. And ancient Israelite jugs were kind of shaped like this. That's, that's what we're dealing with here. You can picture them, right? Now, you might think of that as a harp, but it's not really. It's kind of a jug-shaped instrument. Some of them were flat-bottomed, and some of them were rounded. That's what we're dealing with with these two instruments. The point is not that God is requiring us to use these instruments. They're the instruments that the ancient Israelites used. And um, while I still think in maybe Indian music, we have the zither, which is kind of pretty close to the, uh, to the lute, um, these aren't instruments that we have. God's not so much concerned about what the instrument is. He likes instruments. And he likes us to sing uh, and have words, but have those words be enhanced by the use of instrumentation. Music is wonderful. I'm not a musician. I love music. I listen to all kinds of music. Uh, 
if in heaven I am going to be a world-class harmonica player. Now I don't know if they're going to I don't know if they're going to allow blues in heaven or not. Um, I, I think they are, but at any rate, that's my dream to be a blues harmonica player. Yeah, that's it's out of my reach at this particular point. But God loves music. He loves us to praise him with music, with music itself, with music accompanied uh, by instrumentation as well. And the third thing is to proclaim or to declare. And in particular, uh, in the morning, your love and in the evening, your faithfulness. Now, some people have used this as, a, as proof as to why we should have morning worship and evening worship. I think that's going like, that's a good idea, but I think it's going beyond what this text is talking about. Uh, this talk, text is talking, it's using morning and evening as two extremes to communicate a totality. And throughout the day, every day, but especially on the Lord's day. It is just good to reflect on who God is, uh, a God of, of covenant love, uh, like singing that song, Oh, love that what? Oh, love that will not let me go. That's this word right here. It's that covenantal love, God binding himself to us now and forevermore to sing of it, to reflect on it, to be encouraged by it. And coupled right with that, his faithfulness, because it, it, is a, it is an unfailing love. It's a love that goes on and on and on. So this psalm starts in verses 1 through 3 by just giving us three good things to do on the Lord's day. Give thanks to the Lord. Make music to the one who is most high. That includes instrumentation. If you can't play them, you can enjoy listening to them. And to proclaim God's unfailing love, his faithfulness to us. To just remember that that love that God had for you, for many of you, years and years and years ago when you started down this path, yeah, he still has that same love for you. And you will never wake up one morning and that love not be there. It is a love in Christ that will never, never let you go. Good things to do. Give thanks, make music, and proclaim or declare. Now, the rest of the psalm, 4 through 15, gives you really a good reason for doing these things. Notice that verse 4 says... For, here comes the reason, you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. As we, as we give thanks to God, as we make music to God, as we proclaim his unfailing love and his faithfulness, one of the results is it just fills our hearts with joy. Joy in who God is. Joy in what God has done. Uh, in particular, as we reflect on God's deeds, the works of your hands. And uh, this language in the book of Psalms, the works of your hands, it, it refers to both God's works in creation and God's works in redemption. 
But the focus is really on God's work in creation and right alongside that, God's work in providence. Not only God making all things out of nothing, but then God's sustaining day by day, moment by moment, God's creation and God's providence. The reason why we are breathing right now is because of God's providential care. All of God, God's governing all of his creatures and all of their actions, God's creation and God's providence. And certainly all of us can think, can't we, about God's work, not just in the world in general, but in our own lives in particular. We can all think of those things that God has done for us. And uh, those things fill us with joy. God's given me three grandchildren. Yeah, what a source of joy uh, grandchildren are. Um, I'd always heard that it was pretty cool. Uh, It's kind of like the Queen of Sheba. I heard about you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye has seen. Yeah, what a joy and a delight it is for God to give us children, for God to give us grandchildren. We can all think of things that God has done. I remember one time, Adele and I were in seminary. Uh, When we were in seminary, we had a red clicker. Anybody remember the red clickers with the three buttons on the top? And they would push digits, zero through nine. Yeah, because when we went grocery shopping, we had $20 cash. We didn't have, I don't, there might have been plastic back then, but we didn't have it. We had $20 cash, and we would go through the aisles, and every time we bought something, we would click. And uh, when we got up to like 19 plus, we would go to the checkout counter. It didn't matter what was on your list because there was no more cash. You just went and paid for it, and that's, that's what you had for the week. Well, I remember one time, uh, it, we needed $200 because my tuition bill was due. Um, Clayton, that was, that was the bill for the whole semester. <laughs> yeah, $200. Uh, and guess what? We didn't have it. And the day it was due, we got a letter from friends of my in-laws saying, we've been thinking about you, and uh, I know Presbyterians don't say this, but they did. The Lord told us to send you $200. And that day there was a check in our mail for 200 You can all think about things that the Lord has done that just make you glad. And that's just a wonderful thing to do on the Lord's day. You make me glad by the works of your hands. Now, the other side of that coin is, sometimes God's works of providence are hard to understand. That's 5 through 15. Notice verse 5. How great are your works, Lord. How profound your thoughts. I like the word deep. How deep your thoughts. God's work of providence in our lives is not always easy to understand. And it doesn't always fill us immediately with joy and with gladness. 
As Isaiah says, his thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways, but they're higher than the heavens and they're deeper than the deepest seas. You see, verse 6 says, not everybody understands God's providential ways. Senseless people do not know. Fools do not understand. Then verse 7 basically says this. Life does not always go the way you anticipated it going. Yeah, we all know that too, don't we? If you have not yet experienced deep disappointment in life, it probably just means one thing. You're young. <laughs> Hang around, and it's, it's going to be there. Every one of us here can testify to the fact that things have happened in our lives. Yeah, maybe we can see some good, maybe not, but perplexing frustrating, stuff that doesn't make sense to us. In fact, there's so much of this that God gave us a whole book in the Bible to help us wrestle with, and that's the book of Ecclesiastes. Life just doesn't always go as it's supposed to go. How many of you have pain this morning in one way or another? And it's not something that you see all the time, and I'm not talking about my knee that aches from time to time because of arthritis. I'm talking about that inner pain that nobody else can see. And uh, yes, yeah, it's interesting how sometimes you can just be going merrily along your way and something will trigger it and you'll just, it'll just all come rushing back in. Uh, we all have those kinds of things in our lives where, wow, you know, 20 years ago, I never would have thought I would be here. I never thought this would have happened. I never thought that would have happened. Um, I just haven't gone on life's way merrily ever after. We all have those kinds of things. Life does not always go as it's supposed to go. But then don't you love 9 through 15? And here's the point of 9 through 15, folks. It'll work out in the end. So hold on. Uh, It will work out in the end. For surely your enemies, Lord, surely your enemies will perish and all evildoers will be scattered. Now what brings that up? Well, if we jump back to verse 7, the things that senseless people don't know is, though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, yeah, that's only for the short run, says the psalmist. See, this language is reminding us of Psalm 1, right? Psalm 1, blessed are the people who, not, 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 but they they delight in the law of the Lord and on his law they meditate. Their lives are like a tree planted by water which yields its fruit in season and their root does not wither. Everything that they do succeeds, not so the wicked. Well, nice theology until you watch the news or until you look at your neighbor's or until you look at your own life. And the fact of the matter is, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Those who live out of accord with God are not supposed to flourish. But sometimes they do. That's deep. 
The psalmist knows it's deep. And that's why he says, Lord, your, your thoughts about how you govern the world, deep. And I'm not going to presume that I can always understand how everything is supposed to be in the short run. And, and sometimes we like to, we like to think that we know how it's all going to play out. And when it doesn't play out that way, we pretend that it is playing out that way. But that's just being dishonest. Uh, better to wrestle with the reality of the fact that we don't always understand God's ways in our lives. And sometimes God brings stuff into our lives that hurts and, and it's perplexing and we don't understand. Uh, it's deep. Uh, I, I've, I've said it, no doubt, a bunch of times from this pulpit, but it's always encouraged me. It's the words of R.C. Sproul. If you knew everything there was to know about God, either you would be or he wouldn't be. God's ways are deep. Deeper than we can understand. And so we have to walk by faith. But in the end, you see, what's it going to be like in the end? Uh, In the end, God's enemies are going to get their comeuppance. God is just. And... In the end, God's friends are going to be the ones who flourish. God has created you to flourish. Jesus has come and redeemed you to flourish. And in the short run, sometimes it doesn't work that way. In the short run, sometimes we're like Job, where we're down in these big dips, these deep valleys. But because of that love that will not let us go... Like Job, we're coming out on the other side and we're going to be doubly blessed. We're going to flourish. God's enemies will perish, God's friends will flourish, and God himself will be glorified in it all in the end. Notice that um, word in verse 15, that word proclaiming or declaring. That's the exact same word that was our third thing to do. Give thanks, make music, declare, proclaim. We come back to that declaring, proclaiming, and it's a nice way of just rounding out, saying, folks, we're coming to the end of this psalm, which means the end of the sermon as well. Proclaiming, proclaiming three things. The Lord is upright. Sometimes we have to confess that by faith. Now, I'm standing upright, And the word upright not only means upright vertical, but it also means upright morally. That's God. He is the upright standard for all morality. He's my rock. The second most important metaphor in the book of Psalms is this metaphor, the Lord is my refuge. And there's a whole bunch of vocabulary that is used. High tower, rock, shelter, shade, uh, refuge. Fortress, all of this language says that God is a, oh, here's another old hymn, a shelter in the time of, you can tell I was a Baptist, right? (laughs) A shelter in the time of storm. Oh, Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a weary land, a weary land, a shelter in the time of storm. And so, see, God knows that his ways are deep. He knows that you don't always understand, and so he reminds you 
that when you're in that kind of trouble and you don't understand, he is there as your refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of need. And so on the Lord's Day, we remember that, that while there's a lot of non-uprightness in the world, God is upright. When there's a lot that would make us unsettled, God is our rock, our refuge and strength. And there is no, my translation says wickedness. Um, It really means injustice. There is no injustice in God. How many times have you said to God, that's not fair? That's how you feel, right? God knows how you feel. So you better just tell him that you think it's not fair. Jeremiah 12, if you haven't read that for a while, read the first two verses of Jeremiah 12, where Jeremiah, reflecting on Psalm 1 and what he watches on the news, says, God, that's not not fair, God. I don't get it. We don't get it, but God is always just in everything that he does. And one day his justice is going to shine like the brightness of the sun. So... God does make us glad by his deeds, but they're not always easy to understand. In the short run, it can be perplexing and painful, but in the long run, God's word is going to be found true, and you are going to flourish like a tree, like a cedar of Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord, where you will declare that God is upright, God is your rock, And there is no injustice in him at all. Now let me conclude. If you have been ticking off with a pencil the verses that we have covered, you're going to notice that I skipped one. I skipped verse 8. The Lord is exalted on high forever. I saved it for the end. Now, not always, but on occasion... Poets don't want us to miss the main point of a psalm. And so they will actually put the main point in the mathematical center of the poem. Now, you have to read Hebrew to do this. But if you start from this line and you count backward, there are 52 words. If you start from this line and you count forward, there are 52 words. 52 on the front, 52 on the end. This is the mathematical center. By the way, Psalm 23 does the same thing. Um, But that's for another day. The point is, the psalmist hasn't left us to wonder what is, like we sang, no, we confessed, there's one thing that is needful to love Jesus. The psalmist is saying, there's really one quintessential thing to focus your attention on on the Lord's day, and that is that the Lord is exalted on high. And that exalted on high has to do with him being, being way up, sitting on a throne, being the king of the universe, ruling over all of his creatures and all of his actions, ultimately for your good, ultimately for his glory. He's the one He is the most high. He is the one who is enthroned on high. And that is because Jesus is the exalted on high horn. In verse 10, uh, it says, the human king says, you have exalted my horn 
That's an ancient way of saying, you've made me powerful. Think of Italian men. Uh, Italian men often wear a, a horn uh, as a necklace. It's a symbol of power. Uh, other cultures do as well. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils. See, the, the, the anointed king with fine oils poured on him as the vehicle through whom the Lord is going to bring about the destruction of his enemies and the flourishing of his foes. See, Jesus is that exalted on high horn. He's ultimately the anointed king that God has empowered in order to bring about your flourishing now and forevermore. And he did it by living a perfect life of righteousness in your place. By dying on the cross to pay the penalty for every one of your sins. By being raised from the dead for your justification. By ascending to the Father's right hand. Where he sits and prays for you in the language of Steve Brown. That you might make it all the way home. And he is coming again in power and in great glory. He's coming again in power and great glory that the whole world might see that God is upright, that He is the ultimate rock, and there's absolutely no injustice in Him. And on that day, we will be brought in to that eternal Sabbath rest for which every human heart longs.